Welcome all of you to our Supreme Court Roundup this afternoon, and I want to thank the Student Legal Forum, which makes this possible. It's a wonderful event each year to make us, give us a chance to try to get our hands around what the Supreme Court is currently up to. We will be reviewing, my colleagues will be reviewing selected cases. There's no effort to be comprehensive. They're picking a few key cases that we hope will give you some sense of where the court's about. Uh, I will open with a few general thoughts about the, the Roberts Court, and in particular this, this uh, most recent term. And then uh, Carrie Abrams will take over and talk about the same-sex marriage case, Obergefell versus Hodges. Fred Schauer will talk about First Amendment cases, in particular um, Reed versus Town of Gilbert and the Confederate license plate case, Walker versus Texas. And then finally, Risa will turn to cases about voting and redistricting from Alabama and Arizona. And at the end of the discussion here, instead of taking questions, we'll simply adjourn for the reception. And I'm sure my colleagues don't mind lingering for a few minutes, and maybe you might have questions for them then. Um, about the Roberts Court in general, as you know, it's now had 10 years of time. It's been a decade since uh, John Roberts became Chief Justice. And we certainly have ample evidence by this point that the Roberts Court is no stranger to judicial activism, however you define that term. I mean, examples from previous terms that you would be familiar with would include um, D.C. versus Heller, the, uh, first, the Second Amendment, a right to bear arms case. Uh, Citizens United is a widely known case dealing with political expenditures by corporations. Uh, the Sibelius case, which though it upheld the, uh, the Affordable Care Act, placed striking limits on the commerce power and also on the uh, uh, spending power. And then one other example, Shelby County, the case in which the court basically, in the judgment of some people, eviscerated the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Those were all, in, in political terms, conservative victories, but of course there have been liberal victories as well, including uh, fairly robust use of the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment in things like child rape and uh, life sentences without possibility of parole. And of course we have United States versus Windsor two years ago, the case in which the court uh, struck down the Defense of Marriage Act. So it's a, a court that is willing to use its powers one way or the other, which brings us then to this term. I mean, what about the term that ended in the summer of 25, 2015? Well, some, in some respects, it was a stunning term uh, from the standpoint of victories of a more liberal kind, perhaps the sort of decisions you might have expected years ago from the Warren Court, a case involving same-sex marriage we'll hear about, uh, the case uh, rebuffing one more challenge to the Affordable Care Act, a case involving housing discrimination, uh, a case involving campaign solicitations by judges. These were all victories which, if you put political labels on them, would be considered liberal victories. And I think some of the factors that were in play this term, uh, one, of course, everybody would understand the role of Justice Anthony Kennedy, who so often provides the fifth and critical vote. Um, he voted uh, with liberal justices in, uh, in ideologically divided five to four cases. He voted with the liberal side of the court, actually more than with the conservative side. One example being the Fair Housing Act case uh, in which the court upheld the theory that disparate impact would be sufficient to bring claims. I mean, that was an interesting case because all 11 of the federal court, circuit courts of appeal had uh, 
accepted uh, disparate impact, and there was no uh, conflict of circuits, which is one of the classic ways of getting a case into the Supreme Court. So given that, uh, the defenders of fair housing were understandably concerned that the court might come in and strike down disparate impact, and they didn't do that. Uh, Kennedy here being the fifth vote, and it's interesting, if you pair off justices, uh, agreements among any two justices on the court, Justice Kennedy agreed, surprisingly to me at least, with Justice Sotomayor more than any other one justice. A second factor, I think, in this term's uh, configuration would be the discipline and cohesion of the what we might refer to as the liberal block on the court, that they agreed with each other, the four justices who are the most liberal, 90% uh, of the time, um, and they filed many fewer separate opinions than the conservatives on the court did. A good example, we'll hear about the same-sex marriage case where all four of the conservatives' dissenters wrote separate uh, dissents, whereas the liberals were willing to, to um, sign on to Kennedy's opinion. You had some similar sort of cohesion, I think, in the Fair Housing Act case and the Affordable Care Act case. Um, Justice Ginsburg, you know, who uh, is 82 now, and there were liberals who wanted her to step down so President Obama could put somebody in her place, and she says, not a chance, I'm going full steam. And by golly, she has. She's really been a, a force on the court. She made a comment in an interview last year that uh, we, and she's referring to the more liberal justices, have made a concerted effort to speak with one voice in important cases, and I think she's helped bring that about. Um, this, there's more splintering that's been going on on the conservative side, where conservatives this term wrote 40 dissents, where the more liberal justices wrote 13, so it's a big difference. Um, a few cases that there were unusual moves by justices, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, for example, we'll hear about the uh, judicial campaign finance case. He's, all, he's been a staunch defender of First Amendment principles in campaign finance cases generally, but in the Florida Bar case, he came down on the side with the more liberal justices upholding the Florida Bar's uh, prohibition on uh, judges soliciting, personally soliciting campaign contributions. Uh, Justice Thomas provided a, a quite an interesting fifth vote in the Texas license plate case, which uh, Fred Schauer will be talking about, uh, the license, the whole holding that Texas could, in fact, uh, refuse to issue vanity plates for with Confederate flags. So you have some interesting um, sort of moves by individual justices. There's one way of thinking about some of these cases. I, it, I advance it as a hypothesis, uh, um, and that is it may be that conservative overreach, the expectation of both litigants and of justices that the court would, in fact, push further and faster to the right than it finally did, may explain some of these cases. I have a sense that maybe four justices granted certiorari in some cases where they thought they would have a fifth vote, and it turned out they did not. Uh, for example, the effort to undermine the Affordable Care Act failed. Uh, efforts to limit the uh, Fair Housing Act failed. Um, and the challenges to voter initiatives in states like California and Arizona, the creation of independent commissions to draw election lines, those challenges were rebuffed. So now these liberal victories, if you call them that, for the most part simply maintain the status quo. I mean, they were not, they did not push the court further to the left, but they kept it from moving to the right. One obvious exception being this, the same-sex marriage case, which we'll hear about shortly. Uh, so Kennedy played a key role in this, but sometimes so did 
Chief Justice Roberts. Uh, and an example would be the Affordable Care Act case in which the proponents of that act feared that uh, Scalia's campaign to move the court to what he calls plain meaning textualism might lead the court to take those famous six words in the statute and use it to strike down the, um, an important part of the act. But uh, I think in, in that case, King versus Burrell, that Chief Justice Roberts shows that he's not um, an adherent to Scalia's theory. He seems to me he's not buying into that. He seems to me to hold to a more traditional view that essentially the court's to be a faithful agent of what the legislature really sets out, what it intends to do, what, it, what its purpose is. Uh, indeed, in this particular case, he was willing to find ambiguity in the relevant part of the statute by looking beyond those words to the rest of the statute. Um, and he basically <clears throat> is saying that um, a fair reading of legislation requires a fair understanding of what the legislative plan was. <clears throat> I find if you compare the Warren and Burger Court days to the days of the Rehnquist and Roberts Court, it's interesting to think about the parties that bring cases because there was when the public interest law movement really was in its uh, heyday back in the Warren and Burger Courts, it was typically liberal organizations, the NAACP, the ACLU, uh, women's rights groups, and the others that were bringing some of the major cases. And many of you will know about Lewis Powell's famous letter to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce in which he said, wake up, guys. Liberals are achieving all these victories in courts. And what are conservative interests, like business interests, doing? Well, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has had a strikingly high rate of success in recent years in the Supreme Court. And you've, what you find now is that, this is my, my sense of it, that liberal groups are holding back a bit for fear if they take cases to the Supreme Court, uh, something bad will happen. The court will actually uh, undermine what they're after. And it's by and large more conservative uh, groups that are bringing these, uh, these cases. Citizens United, a perfect example of that. So watch the court next term because there's some interesting cases coming up that have been bought, brought by conservative activists. Uh, examples would include the challenge to the University of Texas's affirmative action program and um, a challenge to a Texas voting law on the, which raises the question whether um, apportionment will be of the entire population or just the voting, just, just uh, U.S. citizens. And both of those lawsuits were brought by a conservative activist, activist Edward Bloom, um, there's yet another case, a union fees case that comes out of uh, California in which a non-union member school teacher doesn't want to pay fees to the, uh, what the California Teachers Association. And that also has been brought by a group called the Center for Individual Rights. Uh, we may see an abortion case next term. The, there are Texas, Texas and Minnesota, Mississippi cases, in each case, the states are imposing rather strict rules requiring abortion clinics to have physicians who have privileges to practice at the local hospital. And in the Texas case, the uh, operators of those clinics say that well, this rule, if it's upheld, will close down about half of the clinics. And in the Mississippi case, they say that it will close down the, the only uh, clinic that's actually in the state. Now, looking further down the road, I think this present term and the next term really uh, set up some interesting questions. Um, for example, uh, conservatives are raising very serious questions about to what extent the court should defer 
to administrative agencies, uh, case this term involving uh, the EPA, Michigan versus EPA. Uh, you, you know perhaps about that case where the court struck down uh, the EPA's rather costly regulation program on the grounds that they have to take cost into account from the beginning. Uh, Justice Thomas concurred in that case going beyond the actual holding, and he said the case raises serious constitutional questions about the courts deferring to agencies under the Chevron rule. He, he would like to open up a much larger question. In another case, there were three justices, Thomas, Scalia, and Alito, who indicated a willingness to um, revisit the deference that's owed to agencies when they're interpreting their own regulations. That's another interesting issue. So, and I think all this falls in line with Chief Justice Roberts, what I see to Chief Justice Roberts' uh, long-term agenda to basically cut back on agent deference to agencies. And if that happens, of course, that will um, benefit opponents of big government uh, generally. The questions for the future lie not only on the conservative side, but the liberals this term raised a couple of very interesting questions, which in effect were invitations to litigate these particular questions. Uh, one has to do with uh, the death penalty. There was a case involving uh, a controversial drug that was uh, upheld by the court five to four, and in a dissent to that case, uh, Justice Breyer said he would um, address the constitutionality of the death penalty as such, a position that Thurgood Marshall and William Brennan took years ago, uh, issue on which uh, justices have opined from time to time, but there's never, as you know, been a majority on the court to abolish the death penalty. But in this particular case, this term, uh, Ginsburg, who joined Breyer's opinion, each of them uh, issued their dissents from the bench, and I think they feel strongly about the death penalty. Another interesting example is solitary confinement. There was a case this term dealing with um, the prosecutions, uh, uh, reviewing the prosecution's peremptory challenges in a case. Uh, Justice Kennedy wrote separately in this case to raise a different question altogether, and that is to say the constitutionality of solitary confinement, and it's one of those rather poetic Kennedy opinions where he seems to reach into his soul and really, in this case, he uh, he's talks about the human toll wrought by extended terms of isolation and the way solitary confinement exacts what he calls a terrible price, and he tosses in a dose of Dostoevsky, uh, which is not what you usually find quoted in Supreme Court opinions, but he quotes Dostoevsky saying the degree of civilization in a society can be judged by entering its prisons. So he would like to see that question brought up before the court. Finally, um, to show you that it wasn't all terribly serious at the court this term, th this is a term that reminds us justices are becoming celebrities. They're becoming, I mean, Ginsburg is a great example. Uh, she, there are now notorious RBG t-shirts uh, there's a biography coming out, and there's a, there are plans, I understand, for a movie titled, uh, if you're prepared for this, on the basis of, basis of sex, uh, starting, starting uh, I think, Natalie Port Portman as um, young Ginsburg. And Ginsburg last year was at the American Constitutional Society, and when somebody asked her about this, she said, look, me at age 82, an icon? You've got to be kidding. But I think she actually loves it.
Um, there's an opera was debuted this year, Scalia Ginsburg, a play called The Originalist about uh, Justice Scalia, where uh, an actor, Edward Garrow, I thought captured Scalia's uh, mannerisms and bluster with a uncanny accuracy. And of course, if nothing else is entertaining, you can always read Scalia opinions. I mean, he always has a word, something you never thought you would see in a Supreme Court opinion, uh, pure applesauce, interpretive jiggery pokery, scotus care, and one of my favorites, the mystical aphorisms of the fortune cookie. And finally, in the Obergefell case, we're going to hear about in just a moment, this is the case in which he said, uh, you know, they said the majority opinion is couched in a style that is as pretentious as its content is egotistical. And this, you, you'll know this is the case where he said rather than join that opinion, he would hide his head in a bag. Well, so they, they are good for entertainment as well as uh, jurisprudence. So that's, <laughs> that's a few notes about thoughts about this term, and I turn now to uh, my colleagues' observations. So, Obergefell. Uh, this is the same-sex marriage case that people were waiting for for years. Uh, we thought a few years ago when the court took the Windsor versus New York case that perhaps it would also take a case that directly implicated state bans on same-sex marriage, but it didn't. It just took the, the federal case. And so a couple of years later, we see the court finally ready to address this issue. Uh, the case it chose was a consolidation of uh, several cases from several states, Michigan, Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee. Uh, there were 14 couples and two men whose partners had died who had brought suit in those states. In every district court case, the plaintiffs won. And then the Sixth Circuit consolidated the cases and reversed. Uh, and that gave the Supreme Court the circuit split that it needed uh, to, con to consider these cases. Obergefell himself, the man whose name uh, appears as the lead plaintiff, um, was actually asking not for the right to marry, but the right to have his marriage recognized. So he had uh, flown with his very ill partner of 20 years um, in a medically equipped plane from Ohio to BWI Airport in Maryland and married on the tarmac and then returned to Ohio and his husband, now husband, died three months later and he was not listed as the spouse on the death certificate. So his suit was, Ohio needs to recognize my Maryland marriage for purposes of this death certificate. Although many of the other plaintiffs who also had very uh, sympathetic stories were seeking the right to marry in their home states. Activists were actually quite concerned about the fact that the Supreme Court took both of these questions up on certiorari, both the issue of, is there a constitutional right to same-sex marriage overall, and then, is there a right to have your marriage recognized if it's not recognized in the, the state in which you live? Because they were concerned that the court could decide just to say yes to that second question and leave the issue of same-sex marriage for another day. But the court didn't do that. Um, it ruled on both um, issues and found that there is a constitutional right to same-sex marriage. So uh, majority opinion, Justice Kennedy, as Professor Howard was, was talking about earlier, um, this was no surprise to anyone that if, if uh, there was a majority opinion that, that held that there was a constitutional right to same-sex marriage, that Kennedy would be the author um, as the, the senior member of that likely five-person majority. 
Um, and he has been the author of every LGBT rights case that the Supreme Court has decided over the last 20 years, uh, Romer versus Evans, Lawrence versus Texas, the Windsor case from a couple of years ago, and now finally Obergefell. Um, it was also, I don't think, any surprise that Kennedy's analysis would be quintessentially Kennedy um, and not necessarily line up with what you might expect a constitutional analysis to look like if you are reading your constitutional law casebook. But none of the other opinions in Romer, in Lawrence, in Windsor um, looked like those typical uh, strict scrutiny, you know, levels of scrutiny kinds of cases that, that we've seen. So how did Kennedy get there? Um, he, he held that there were two uh, bases for this uh, constitutional right to marry, and one is under the Due Process Clause, and the other is under the Equal Protection Clause. Um, the Due Process issue had really other, already been decided um, by previous cases in the sense that the court had held multiple times that there's a fundamental right to marry. So in the 1960s in Loving versus Virginia, it had held that there was a fundamental right to marry in the context of an interracial marriage. And then in the 1970s, in Zablocki versus Redhale, it had held that there was a fundamental right to marry in the context of a state law that denied men who were in arrears on their child support from marrying. Right? And then in the 1980s, um, uh, it again held a fundamental right to marry in the context of women prisoners who were denied the right to marry while in prison. So the question wasn't really, is there a fundamental right to marry? It's, does same-sex marriage count as marriage? Um, does this fundamental right to marry extend to same-sex marriage? So what Justice Kennedy does in his opinion is he tries to figure out what are the reasons why we would call marriage a fundamental right? What are the principles underlying it? And then do they apply to same-sex couples with equal force as they would to opposite-sex couples? And he comes up with four reasons for the fundamental right. Um, one is the right to personal choice regarding marriage is inherent in the concept of individual autonomy. So if you're thinking about the, the liberty aspect of due process, um, liberty might include autonomy, and the right to enter into this kind of relationship is, is the kind of autonomy that adults are entitled to have. And he says same-sex couples would have that same right, just, just as heterosexual couples would have. Second, the right to marry supports a two-person union unlike any other in its important, importance to the committed individuals. So here he just seems to be saying that marriage is really important. It's more important than friendship. Uh, maybe it's more important than other relationships that your work relationships with someone. This is a very special kind of relationship that's important to people. Third, the right to marry safeguards children and families. So here he's making an argument not why, why the couple should want the right to marry, but why their children would have an interest in their parents being married and the kind of stability that that would give financial security that would give the children. And then final, finally, one I thought was curious, marriage is a keystone of our social order. So that fourth one seemed less to me about why a person would want to marry and more about why the government would want people to marry, right? If it's a key to, keystone of the social order, and, and he talks about how there are a lot of benefits that the government gives are bundled into marriage, um, I, wasn't, I wasn't entirely convinced that it was the reason you would make marriage a fundamental right. It might be the reason you would, you would ask, why is the government interested in regulating this? But, but he ties it into the reasons why uh, marriage is a fundamental right. So uh, the opinion finds that same-sex marriage is required uh, based on due process, but then also based on equal protection. And then here we, again, have a slightly unusual equal protection analysis. So those of you who have taken constitutional law are probably used to equal protection um, being about protected classes of people. 
right? So you could imagine an opinion that would say um, sexual orientation is a suspect or protected class, and therefore if you see a law that discriminates against people based on sexual orientation, it gets a higher scrutiny. They don't do that in this opinion. Um, you could also imagine them making the same argument with just sex, with saying uh, if you deny a woman the right to marry someone else simply because she's a woman and the other person's a woman, it's sex discrimination, and the opinion doesn't do that. Um, instead, it ties the equal protection argument back to the due process argument and thinks of them together. So Justice Kennedy's opinion says, the due process clause and the equal protection clause are connected in a profound way. In any particular case, one clause may be thought to capture the essence of the right in a more accurate and comprehensive way, even as the two clauses converge in the identification and definition of the right. So he kind of blends them together. And um, it, when I first read this, I thought he was returning to the fundamental rights strand of equal protection analysis, which actually a lot of the earlier marriage cases were. Um, so thinking back to the child support case, the blocky, the court doesn't say it's a due process violation. It says it's an equal protection violation. You have people who owe child support and people who don't and the people who owe child support don't get to marry, and the people who don't do, but there's no protected class there. We don't usually worry about discrimination against people who owe child support. It's just that marriage is so important. Uh, we're going to hold this to a higher level of scrutiny even though there's no protected class. Um, but I don't think he's even doing that. I think he's making a deeper point about the history of discrimination against gay and lesbian people here. So at one point he says, especially against a long history of disapproval of their relationships, this denial to same-sex couples of the right to marry works a grave and continuing harm. So it's almost as if he's saying that because same-sex couples have been discriminated against for so long, in part by their exclusion from marriage, we should be especially worried that they are excluded from marriage. That kind of uh, discrimination is worse than excluding them from other sorts of institutions because it's been constituted of the way um, their identity has been constructed. Uh, so a couple other interesting features of this opinion and then I'll say a word about the dissents. First of all, dignity gets used nine times in the opinion. Um, Kennedy is well known for his use of the word dignity. Uh, there, were, uh, there was a lot of chatter on the internet about um, you, how you could play a drinking game during oral argument and every time Kennedy said dignity and you could drink and you would end up very drunk. Um, and that was probably true if you tried it. Um, only nine times in the opinion though. Um, and I'll loop back to that when I get to Justice Thomas's dissent because he kind of takes on the, the, the use of the word dignity. Um, but the second observation I had is that he really focuses on the social and emotional aspects of marriage in the opinion in a way that I was surprised by. So a couple of years ago in the Windsor opinion on the Defense of Marriage Act, there was much more of a focus on what are the benefits the state gives you for marrying? And is it fair to discriminate against people and not give them those benefits? So in this case with Obergefell, for example, he could have said, you know, if you don't get your name on your spouse's death certificate, you might not be able to get Social Security survivor's benefits. Or you might not be able uh, to have an exemption from the estate tax. Like that, that, having your name there is really important because it has serious financial consequences. Um, but he doesn't say that. Instead, he says things like, marriage responds to the universal fear that a lonely person might call out only to find no one there. It's not about benefits, right? It's about this deep emotional connection that people have to each other. Um, or 
The nature of marriage is that through its enduring bond, two persons together can find other freedoms, such as expression, intimacy, and spirituality. So uh, the, the entire opinion, until like one paragraph where he lists all the benefits, um, is really about the emotional bond between people and the social um, recognition of that bond and the dignity that he thinks that that confers upon people, and less about the benefits the government offers. So I've frequently asked a question on my family law exams, always changed a little bit, of course, but it's not the same question year after year. Can the state abolish marriage? Would it be constitutional? And I've often thought the answer is probably yes, right? If the, the, the problem to me was not that there, that there is a right to marry, but that there, if the state is going to have something it calls civil marriage, and it gives people the opportunity to do this, and it gives them access to things like divorce court and division of property at divorce and inheritance and other benefits like social security, it has to be even handed about it, but it could just decide not to do it tomorrow. I'm not sure that's right anymore after this opinion. Like this opinion is not really about the benefits that the state gives through marriage. It's about something deeper and something potentially pre-constitutional um, about a kind of human relationship that, that Justice Kennedy at least seems to believe that people are in, entitled to um, have recognized by the state. Okay, some quick words on the dissents. Um, as Professor Howard noted, all four of the dissenting justices wrote their own dissents. Um, Scalia and Thomas joined each other's dissents and Roberts and Alito's. They just dissented all over the place. Um, Roberts is the most, has the, Justice Roberts has the most comprehensive and well-reasoned dissent out of all of them, I think. Um, I guess they're, I mean, they're all well-reasoned in their own way, but his is the one that really tries to take on the majority in a, in a serious way. Um, his arguments, just as Kennedy's were predictable, are pretty predictable as well. We're not a legislature, we're a court. We shouldn't be doing this. This is up to the states to do. Um, and same-sex marriage is not deeply rooted in history and tradition. Um, it's new. Um, it, I found it curious and interesting that, that Justice Kennedy kind of ignored the history part, right? It's like, Yes, this is a new kind of, of marriage, but we've changed marriage a lot. We've gotten rid of um, coverture where uh, women lose their legal rights at marriage. We now allow interracial marriage, and so the history doesn't really matter. Then we have Justice Roberts coming in and saying, for millennia, this is the way it's been. It's been one man and one woman, and, and now suddenly in the last 30 years we've changed it. Um, I wasn't entirely convinced by his history, uh, he lists several cultures in which it's always been one man and one woman, and I looked at the list and thought, no, actually it's one man and many women <laughs> in, in a lot of these cultures. And so, you know, if we're really going to be originalist about this, we should just have polygamy. And that's, you know, so, so um, I think going too deep into history can get you in trouble sometimes here. Um, but he uh, um, really hinged his argument on the idea that the plaintiffs are trying to change the definition of marriage, and that's the legislature's job. Um, Scalia essentially wrote the same dissent, but really angrily. Um, so it's the same arguments, but it includes, uh, um, yeah, m many um, comments that he that he says in the opinion, um, or implies in the opinion, might be inappropriate in a majority opinion, but are okay in a dissent. Um, so he, while he is simultaneously taking on the rhetoric of the majority opinion and saying it's not legal and it's inappropriate, he says, well, but that might be okay in a dissent, and then he proves to you what he thinks is okay in a, in a dissent. Um, and the majority opinion is a threat to our democracy, is kind of the theme, the theme there. And it really kind of reads like a call to arms. You know, like, 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 
these justices did not have the authority to do this, hint, hint, don't, don't respect this opinion, right? Um, Thomas's opinion I thought was really interesting. It, like many Thomas's opinions, um, is based partly on the idea that you should stick to the text of the Constitution and there is no right to marriage in the Constitution anywhere, so you get the sense that he would overturn all of the right to marry cases and just say, just not there. This is something that the states do. Um, but then he also takes on this use of the word dignity, and he says, the government can't bestow dignity. It's something you have. And I was thinking of the Whitney Houston greatest love of all song, no matter what they take from me, they can't take away my dignity, when I was reading his his opinion, and he says slaves did not lose their dignity because the government allowed them to be enslaved. Those held in internment, internment camps did not lose their dignity because the government confined them. And I was thinking here, he and Justice Kennedy are just talking across each other completely. Justice Kennedy is drawing on an international human rights norm of dignity, right? And, and it, not just international human rights, but what many other countries are doing in their constitutional ju jurisprudence now, where you're talking about things that the government should not be able to do to someone because they have a right to dignity, um, because they're human, right? And Justice Thomas is talking about an internal emotional state that someone might have. Um, and so they're, they're just not talking about the same thing. Um, and then finally, uh, Justice Alito also dissents, and he brings up the procreation argument that the other justices seemed less willing to focus on. So he says, the purpose of marriage is to foster procreation and a, and a good space for child rearing, and same-sex couples don't have children together, so they don't need it. That's essentially the argument that he makes. Um, so a few thoughts going forward here. Um, first of all, I think, this doesn't, this isn't gonna surprise you because it's already happening, but the action now in the response to this, a lot of the action is gonna be in religious exemptions. So the big question is gonna be, okay, now that we have this nationwide right to same-sex marriage, um, under what circumstances can someone claim that it's against their religious beliefs and, and how tied to the state do they have to be uh, for that not to be okay? Um, but then I think the second question is, where does this leave the LGBT rights movement um, now that the marriage issue has been taken care of, right? And I think here the analysis may end up mattering. So the fact that this is such a pro-marriage opinion and so focused on how marriage is this you know, tool of the social order and civilizing force and not uh, uh, gay and lesbians get heightened scrutiny because sexual orientation is the suspect class kind of opinion, it really leaves us uh, knowing very little about how to apply this to say a housing discrimination case or an employment discrimination case, um, which aren't about marriage. Um, and so you can really think of this, even though it's the liberal justices with Kennedy, as a deeply conservative opinion. It's reifying marriage as the most important institution, more important than anything, any other kind of relationship, and giving benefits to people who are willing to be a part of that institution, um, but not necessarily giving rights to people outside of that institution. Thanks. So thank you to the Student Legal Forum and Dick for putting on this event and inviting me. Uh, so I've been asked to talk about uh, last term's free speech decisions. Two of them were unimportant and two of them were important. I'll mention the two unimportant ones and then talk at some length about the important ones. So one of the unimportant ones was 
unimportant for First Amendment purposes, although people thought it was going to be important. A case called Alonis versus the United States. Uh, Alonis was represented by our own Supreme Court clinic. Um, the case in which um, Mr. Alonis uh, used social media to say a whole range of horrible and threatening things to his estranged spouse. Uh, and then the question was whether this was a threat using social media, using electronic resources uh, in violation of federal law. Uh, everybody thought, or most people thought, that this was going to be a First Amendment case. It was substantially argued, both in the briefs uh, and in oral argument, as a First Amendment case. But it, the Supreme Court ultimately decided it not as a First Amendment case, decided uh, in favor of Alonis, uh, but entirely on statutory interpretation grounds, substantive criminal law grounds and a little bit on due process grounds, saying that it was necessary to prove that Alonis intended to threaten, as opposed to his victim feeling threatened, as opposed to the words being interpreted uh, objectively as threatening. Uh, it was necessary for the prosecution to show that he intended to threaten. All of this is a matter of statutory interpretation, substance of criminal law, and due process, and not at all about the First Amendment, so I'm not going to talk about it. Uh, so, um, Second, uh, as Dick briefly mentioned, there was a case called Williams U. Lee versus the Florida Bar, uh, which was about the question whether judges who actively solicited campaign funds when running for election were protected by the First Amendment in soliciting campaign funds in much the same way that most other candidates for most other offices in the wake of Buckley versus Vallejo, uh, Citizens United, uh, McCutcheon, and a bunch of other cases have First Amendment rights to solicit funds. And the Supreme Court said, no, judges are different. Uh, not surprisingly that a group of judges would say judges are different. Uh, judges are different. Judges can be restricted in ways uh, that others cannot because of the necessity of preserving the integrity of the judiciary, public confidence in the judiciary, and so on. So uh, I at least uh, think per perhaps we can think of this case as a footnote, but only a footnote to the Buckley versus Vallejo line of cases and not much more than that. So the two important cases. One of them, a case called Walker versus Texas Division, Sons of Confederate Veterans, uh, which sort of signals what the case is all about. The issue was, in fact, simple, or relatively simple as a factual matter. Texas issues what it calls specialty license plates. Not strictly vanity plates, rather specialty license plates because a group of people or a group can petition to have license plates that have the design and logo and symbols of the group or the organization. Um, a commission decides whether Texas will accept this, and if Texas accepts this, uh, then you can get this kind of license plate. 
obviously for a fee. Uh, and in general, Texas does not exercise very much control over what kinds of things are permissible. So despite the fact that Texas feels strongly about um, football and its football team, you can get a University of Oklahoma Go Sooners license plate in Texas. Um, and I'm making up these examples, but um, it suggests the kind of thing that Texas allows, despite the fact that Texas has a uh, large and prosperous beef industry. Um, a group can certainly uh, get eat more chicken license plates, despite the fact that Texas has a substantial oil industry. A group could get solar power is best license plates, and so on and so on. Despite the fact, however, that Texas was open to a very wide range of license plates, they said no to the, United, to the Sons of Confederate Veterans when the Sons of Confederate Veterans wanted a license plate that made mention of the Sons of Confederate Veterans and had, a, had an image of the Confederate battle flag on the license plate. Obviously, the case took on greater significance in light of the South Carolina killings and all of the concerns about the Confederate battle flag uh, that came after that. But the case is of doctrinal significance even apart from that. Um, the doctrinal significance is largely about the question of government speech. That is, in general, at least in various different public forums, in various different ways, the government cannot engage, including the government of Texas, cannot engage in what is called viewpoint discrimination. They can't pick and choose in terms of who can speak in the park. They can't pick and choose in terms of who can have a parade. They can't pick and choose among all of these things based on whether you hold one view or the opposing view. Viewpoint discrimination is, in general, a big no-no as a matter of First Amendment doctrine. A big exception to this is that the government, when the government is speaking, is allowed to engage in its own viewpoint discrimination. The government can have a point of view, the government can take a position. One of the interesting things about the opinions in the Walker case is that all nine of the justices agreed with the basic propositions that I have just articulated. The disagreement was about how this particular case fit into that framework. But sometimes we get too hung up on disagreements, sometimes we get too hung up on applications to particular facts. The fact that all nine justices agreed that government speech, when the government is speaking, is largely immune or completely immune from the constraints on viewpoint discrimination is probably the most important dimension. Nevertheless, although all of the justices agreed on this, uh, the debate was about whether the license plates were the speech of government or whether they were the speech of the car owner. The majority, um, Justice Breyer writing for himself, Justice Thomas, Justice Kagan, Justice Sotomayor, and Justice Ginsburg, Ginsburg said this is government speech and therefore Texas can say no to the sons of Confederate veterans. 
the dissent, Justice Alito, joined by Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Scalia, and Justice Kennedy, said this is viewpoint discrimination. Texas doesn't want the Confederate battle flag on the license plates. That's viewpoint discrimination. So the real question was, is this the government speaking, or is this the car owner speaking, or a group of car owners speaking? It is clear that when government speaks, it can engage in viewpoint discrimination in the various different ways in which government speaks. Uh, it is not a constitutional requirement that government add an image of Osama bin Laden uh, at Mount Rushmore. Uh, although Alexander Hamilton is on the $10 bill, at least for the moment, um, it is not necessary for government to have an equal number of $10 bills with Aaron Burr um, on them. Uh, and in various other ways, um, government, when it speaks, is allowed to take positions. Government is allowed to engage in its own viewpoint um, discrimination. Indeed, in the license plate context, we can see this every time we look at a District of Columbia license plate that says taxation without representation. This is a point of view. Um, you may agree with it, you may disagree with it, uh, but it is clearly a point of view uh, that's being expressed by the District of Columbia license plates. So, um, then the question is, how do we think uh, about the license plates? But it's not just about license plates. Government generally speaks through its employees. So the important question, the important issue surrounding the whole government speech issue is that when government speaks normally through its employees, is it government speaking, or under what circumstances is it the employee who is also a citizen speaking, in which case the employee might have free speech rights? So most of the interesting government speech cases involve employees where the government is saying, in effect, um, we are taking a position and we are telling our employees that they should espouse the position for us. And the employee is saying, I am an employee. Uh, I do not lose my First Amendment rights. I do not lose my constitutional rights by taking government employment. Um, so uh, that's the issue. Um, that's the importance um, of the case. Uh, Justice Breyer, speaking for the majority, said, yes, it is true that Texas allows a very wide range of license plates, but the people who want this on the license plates want the government's endorsement. After all, you are constitutionally entitled, he said, to paint the Confederate battle flag on the side of your car. The very fact that you want it on the license plate suggests that you want to tell people that Texas at least somewhat agrees with your position, um, and therefore it's government speech, and therefore Texas can say, no, we don't want to endorse this position. The dissent said, in effect, don't be ridiculous. Everybody who wants one of these things can get it. Uh, a wide range of political positions, ideological positions, and a whole bunch of other things all get to be on the Texas license plates. This is citizen speech that just happens to be on a license plate, and therefore for Texas to engage in viewpoint discrimination of this sort violates the First Amendment. 
That's the issue. Um, but as I said, just to repeat, the most important thing is the unanimous reaffirmation of this basic idea of government speech is largely immunized from First Amendment scrutiny, no matter how viewpoint discriminatory, no matter how much it may take a viewpoint it is. <coughs> Second important case, case called Reed versus the town of Gilbert. Uh, the facts are somewhat less interesting. The doctrine is somewhat more so. Uh, the town of Gilbert's sign ordinance uh, drew a distinction between, on the one hand, political and ideological signs, and on the other hand, temporary directional signs in terms of the size of the sign, how long you could keep it up, and a whole bunch of other regulations of this variety. A church that had put up a temporary directional sign for its church event complained that they were being discriminated against because the regulation restricted their temporary directional sign more than regulations would restrict various other kinds uh, of signs. Justice Thomas wrote for the majority, um, along with uh, Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Scalia, Justice Kennedy, Justice Alito, and Justice Sotomayor, and Justice Kagan concurred in the judgment, joined by Justices Ginsburg uh, and Breyer. So there was agreement that the church was being discriminated against. There was an agreement by all nine justices that these regulations that imposed a greater restriction on temporary directional signs than on other kinds of signs were impermissible in this case. What was important, however, or what is important going forward, is that Justice Thomas, for the majority, said that there is no distinction between discrimination on the basis of point of view as in the examples I was mentioning when I talked about the Texas license plate case, and discrimination on the basis of subject matter. That discrimination on the basis of subject matter is just as bad, they said, as discrimination on the basis of point of view. This is a dramatic change from existing doctrine and is likely to have enormously pervasive implications. So, um, one way to think about this um, is the argument one way um, is that, and the argument that would support the majority's view, is that to discriminate on the basis of subject matter is to set the agenda. To discriminate on the basis of subject matter is to decide what kinds of things can be talked about and what cannot, and that goes against the fundamental tenets of the First Amendment. The argument the other way uh, is that all sorts of institutions have particular purposes. And if subject matter discrimination is treated the same way as viewpoint discrimination, institutions will not be able to focus uh, or protect their fundamental purposes. So let's bring it literally back here and think about an example. This is, as you know, a state institution. Um, so um, one of the things that under existing doctrine, uh, the University of Virginia School of Law is permitted to do is to say, we will allow all sorts of groups to set up booths. We will allow all sorts of groups to come into the building and solicit literature and everything else, but it has to be about law. That under existing doctrine is permissible. 
The question is whether after Reed versus the town of Gilbert, the law-non-law distinction, the subject matter distinction, is still permissible. This relates to a wide variety of different institutions. Um, it's one thing to say that the University of Virginia Law School um, must allow in, as it must under existing doctrine, all points of view as long as all points of view relate to law. It is quite something else to say that the University of Virginia School of Law must allow anybody in to speak about anything as long as it allows somebody in to speak about something. Uh, that's why I say this case, despite its relatively uninteresting facts, may have more far-reaching implications and why in the concurring opinion written by Justice Kagan, this was thought to be an enormously consequential move by the majority. Whether the majority sticks to it in the future is something we, are, we will see in the future. Thank you. Good, get out now. It's going to get complicated. Um, thank you all for coming, and thank you to the Student Legal Forum for having me and to Dick for organizing this. And I've been learning a lot, so this has been really fun for me. Um, I'm going to talk about two redistricting cases, and I'll share a little bit of background about both, but they're very different cases. One is Arizona State Legislature v. Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission, and the second is Alabama Legislative Black Caucus versus Alabama. Um, I'll say at the outset, I think it's unclear how important these two cases are. So if more of you want to leave, that's fine too. Um, they're, they're important for various reasons, but they're not, you know, groundbreaking new doctrine uh, like Fred just described about his last case. So both cases concern the process of electoral redistricting that takes place after every decennial census uh, in both state. It, it, districts are redrawn in, for both state and federal electoral purposes to reflect changes in population across state lines within states. Um, and redistricting has always been quite contentious and subject to lots of manipulation. Um, Elbridge Jerry was the eighth governor of Massachusetts in 18. 10, and he gave his name to gerrymandering when he created a district shaped like a salamander in order to uh, achieve some political gain. So these problems go way back. There are two main kinds of gerrymandering, and they often overlap and combine in interesting and problematic ways. Um, there's political gerrymandering, and there's racial gerrymandering. gerrymandering. The Arizona case is largely about political issues, and the Alabama case is, uh, is explicitly about racial gerrymandering, but it's really about both. In both cases, these were 5-4 decisions with the liberals uh, getting Kennedy to join them. He is silent in both cases. He's not writing these opinions, but he is there in the five uh, uh, of the liberals who win. Um, so I'm going to talk about each one separately. The Arizona case is uh, the easier one to describe, I think, so I'm going to start with that one. So Arizona voters were fed up with all the partisan 
and political gerrymandering that was going on in Arizona. And the voters passed an initiative called Proposition 106, which amended the Arizona state constitution to remove redistricting authority from the Arizona legislature and lodge it in an independent commission, the Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission, or the AIRC. So people are appointed in a kind of bipartisan fashion to that uh, independent commission. Arizona is not the only state that does this. There are about six, including California. Um, the legislature gets taken away from them, the power to redistrict. Uh, that's not only upsetting to them because they lose power, it's also upsetting to them because they will lose their seats, right? Uh, the power enables them to uh, ensure that they continue to be reelected. So. There are two issues in this case, so they sue. There are two issues in this case. One is about standing, uh, and one is about the election clause, the elections clause, the Constitution. Even those of you who have already taken constitutional law, I am sure, are thinking in your heads, elections clause? That is not a clause that came up a whole lot in my constitution, uh, constitutional law class. I don't know about yours. Um, but I'll talk briefly about the standing issue and then talk about uh, the, the merits. So the question about standing, People only have standing if they have a real injury, right? There has to be a case or controversy controversy before you get uh, jurisdiction, and uh, only if a party has a real interest uh, can they have standing in order to bring suit. And the question is, does the Alabama legislature have standing? Part of that question has to do with, can an institution like a legislature have standing as opposed to the individuals in it? Um, the uh, majority says yes, and actually here it's 7-2, only Scalia and Thomas say that there's no standing. So the, a majority of the court says there is standing. The Alabama legislature lost something real. They lost the ability to redistrict. Uh, that's a real industry, and they get to sue. Scalia and Thomas dissent, and uh, Scalia writing for both of them says, but standing's not just about injury. It's also about politics. And we've always had this political question doctrine. We've always had this idea that the judiciary should not get involved in political questions between two different political units. And this is one of those questions. This is two units within the state fighting each other about uh, uh, who has the authority here, and we should not get involved. The bigger issue is the merits issue, right? Can Arizona voters, by initiative, constitutionally withdraw redistricting authority from the legislature and give it to an independent commission. So here is the constitutional issue. The elections clause, Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1, for those of you who brought your handy constitutions with you, uh, says, the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representat representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, but the Congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations. So what's the question in the case? Does the word legislature mean that Arizona voters can't take that power away from their representative body and give it to an independent commission? So the majority opinion written by Justice Ginsburg 
goes historical, which is you follow, if you follow these 5-4 uh, cases, it's often the conservatives who look to historical evidence and original intent and meaning, um, uh, and the liberals who stay away from it. But in this case, both are talking historically. So Justice Ginsburg says, okay, there were no initiatives or a referenda at the time of the founding. That's not a meaningful way to think about this. Those are creatures of the early 20th century progressive era. But legislature and legislative, uh, were, that word referred to the power that makes laws. Not just these particular representatives, but the power, the legislative power, and that the Constitution is inherently about the people being sovereign, and the people can exercise their sovereignty, exercise their legislative power by taking that power away from their representatives, right? There are agency concerns as between the people and the legislature, and we shouldn't privilege the legislature over the people. In fact, the very nature of our sovereign uh, uh, sovereignty in our Constitution is we privilege uh, the people. She also points out that the purpose of the Elections Clause is not to limit how states get to determine the time, place, and manner of their elections, but rather to be clear that Congress can override whatever rules those states make. So whoever it is who's making the rules, Congress gets to change them if Congress wants to. Uh, and Ginsburg, again, if you follow these kinds of things, this is slightly unusual, Ginsburg emphasizes federalism. She says, why would you want to limit the way states internally get to experiment with the best way to redistrict, right? That's something you should want to do. She and uh, Justice Roberts go back and forth on this a little bit with him saying, federalism, since when do you care about federalism? And she's saying to him, I thought you did care about federalism, why not here? Um, and we'll talk about how they're kind of talking past each other uh, in, in a minute. Um, she does have a few comments where she points out that the commission is less partisan and has done a less partisan job. He disagrees about that too. Uh, and she thinks that uh, if you were to decide this case the other way around, it's not only these independent commissions that would fall, but lots of other rules that govern voting and elections as well. Not surprisingly, Justice Roberts thinks that uh, is overblown as a concern too. So Roberts's main claim, though, in response to her claim about what legislature means is, excuse me, <laughs> that's not what legislature means, right? The legislature is uh, the body of uh, elected representatives. He points to history, he points to text, he points to uh, precedent, and he points especially to the 17th Amendment, which is the amendment that shifted how United States senators were elected. Originally, they were elected by state legislatures, and then they are elected by the people. And he says, I'm sorry, if it were the case that legislature could mean the people, why would everyone have gone to all that trouble to actually change what the text says? Uh, the other main thing that he does, and he actually has an appendix in which he lists all of these, is he shows all the other places in the Constitution where the legislature is discussed and that clearly it is referring to the legislature constituted um, by representatives. Justice Ginsburg has some answers to that um, uh, about legislature's different roles and how these other places in the Constitution are talking about very specific kinds of roles and not necessarily the legislative function. Um, so how important is this? It's clearly important for those states that have independent redistricting commissions. They get to keep them. There are only six of them, so it's not that large a number, but it does include states like Arizona and California, pretty um, big and important states. Um, in addition, uh, it may 
uh, license other states to do this, right? That's one of the things that the Supreme Court does. It signals that this is constitutional, and you might see uh, more states engaging in this in the future. There are two larger comments that, uh, that I would make. The first is um, that the two conceptions of what the legislature is tracks the two conceptions of how we should think about sovereignty and the relationship between the states and the people in them uh, by the conservatives and the liberals. The liberals generally like to think about the people as sovereign and de-emphasize the role of the states as states, uh, and the conservatives emphasize the people in the states and sovereign considerations of uh, the states, the state's dignity, the state's immunity, the state's power as uh, states. So this is a reprise of other cases and yet another kind of moment in, in that ongoing debate. And that goes to the federalism uh, uh, interchange that they're having. They're both arguing in favor of federalism. The question is just who gets to decide what states want. Uh, and Justice Ginsburg says the federalism interest includes the people speaking for themselves. And uh, Justice Roberts emphasizes that states should get to decide what they want without oversight impeding uh, the legislative process. Uh, and he has in mind here the fact that the states in the redistricting process often don't get to do what they want because of case number two, the Alabama case, right? There's an enormous uh, federal presence in redistricting and uh, judicial presence in redistricting. So I'm going to run out of time, but I will say a little bit about this Alabama case. It comes out a very different kind of uh, history of gerrymandering, uh, and this is racial gerrymandering. This case is uh, related to the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which prohibits uh, racial discrimination in voting. Um, that act was obviously passed as part of the civil rights movement in the 1960s in response to voter disfranchisement, largely but not entirely, in the South for uh, almost 100 years, uh, well, 60 years. Uh, it doesn't happen until the 1890s, uh, about 60 years uh, um, in the making. So this, the Voting Rights Act creates enormous amount of federal oversight, both judicial and uh, administrative and executive in the Justice Department, uh, over elections and redistricting. And for many years, one of the key aspects of fights about redistricting are what are called, so one of the things that makes it very difficult to talk about redistricting cases is just a lot of jargon. So there are majority-minority districts, right? Districts in which a majority of the voters are minorities, racial minorities, um, and the idea behind the creation of majority-minority districts was that minority voters um, might not be able to elect candidates of their choice, and so creating districts in which they are concentrated would allow them to create, uh, to elect uh, candidates of their choice. Uh, and for a long time, the Supreme Court has said um, that it's okay to think about race in creating such majority minority districts so long as the districts don't look crazy, right? So long as you're also following traditional rules of redistricting and you don't make a salamander, uh, there aren't, you know, you have geographic uh, contiguity, 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 I'm going to skip that word, especially since I'm running out of time, um, uh, uh, and uh, you don't cross, you know, internal political lines and, and things like that. Um, and so for a long time, liberals and Democrats, and we're going to talk about the relationship between politics and race in a second, liberals liked majority-minority districts, and they were pushing for them, and conservatives were arguing against them and calling those racial gerrymanders. The court says they're allowed so long as they don't create crazy districts. But then, after a point in time, 
conservatives realize these majority minority districts aren't so bad for us, given that minorities tend to be Democrats, and if you can get them all into a few districts, they'll get those districts, but we'll get all the other districts, right? So, um, uh, so in more recent times, Republicans have wanted to minority pack another phrase, right, or um, max black districts. These are all the phrases that people like to use um, uh, in order to tamp down Democratic power by limiting uh, the number of districts that they have a lot of uh, power in. And now the liberals call foul and say they're doing racial gerrymanders. So this is one of those latter types of cases. After the 2010 census, Alabama redistricts. Republicans are in power. They want to stay in power. So they push as many African Americans as they can into already African-American dominant districts, uh, and the Democrats and the Black Caucus uh, sue. There's, again, a standing issue that I'm not going to talk about at the moment, but I'm happy to talk about afterwards. Um, the main issue there is whether they can sue the plan as a whole or they have to prove uh, harms on a district-by-district -district basis. The court says the latter, and they managed to do that. On the substance, the question is, as it always is for racial gerrymandering, was race the predominant motive, uh, the predominant motivating factor in the creation of the challenge districts? The legislature claims that it wasn't. It claims their goal was to maintain as close as possible a one-person, one-vote uh, uh, um, uh, percentage. So. Often you can't quite get exactly one person, one vote, and the court has said it's okay to deviate by around 5%. Alabama said, we were trying to get to 1%. And because of that, and because we didn't want to get in trouble for diluting the black vote by in putting many white people into districts that are majority-minority districts, we had to add a lot more African Americans into those districts, and so we weren't really being motivated by race. The court says, no, that's not a good answer. The one-person, one-vote principle isn't part of your motivating factor. It's a background condition. It's something you always have to comply with, so you don't get to say that's part of why we were doing it, and at the end of the day, um, the court vacates and remands, so it sends it back and says, district court, you got the standard wrong, so go look at your facts again. But hint, hint, nudge, nudge, we think there was racial gerrymandering here, right? They don't come down on that, uh, but they clearly think that that is the case. Um, so this case, I think, um, I don't think that much is going to change when it goes back down, because I think uh, uh, Republicans in Alabama who are in power are probably going to find ways to um, maintain vaguely what they've done while still uh, complying and, and, and doing less racial gerrymandering. But what's more important is in this case is what doesn't happen. And this is where uh, Justice Thomas's dissent, he, dis he has one dissent that's alone. He also joins Justice Roberts, uh, sorry, Justice um, Scalia on the standing issue. But what he says on his own is, this whole thing is a big problem. The reason we're in this mess is because we allow race to be considered as a factor in redistricting at all, and we shouldn't do that, and we should have a colorblind constitution, and by allowing from the get-go race to be considered in redistricting, we went wrong, and we created this whole problem. 
the fact that the liberals win here, don't embrace that, uh, and express that they are not answering the question of whether racial gerrymandering, even if done appropriately, could actually be constitutionally problematic, is probably how they got Kennedy on their side. Um, so this seems to me like a holding pattern kind of case, where you've got these two contending sides of how we should think about race in the Constitution, uh, and they, uh, the liberals for the moment have staved off that uh, impending clash, and uh, I'm sure there will be more to come. Thank you.